Father, tonight in the book of Acts, I thank you that you gave me time to study and I thank you that you brought ears to hear. So I ask, Father, that whatever purpose you had in both those things, it would be met tonight. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 19 of Acts. We are back there and we're finishing that chapter tonight. So the rest of the book of Acts is a story of how Paul gets to Rome. And it's an involved story. Paul has one heck of a time making his way to Rome, and a lot of things are going to happen along the way. In fact, I want you to take note of just how hard it is for Paul, it would seem, to get to Rome. And that becomes a reflection of how important it is that he does so, and how threatening to the enemy it is that he does so. Tonight we look at an interesting story that concludes the chapter, chapter 19. It doesn't directly relate to his movement onward to Rome, but I think it's a foreshadowing of how Paul's efforts to get to Rome will be impeded at every turn by the enemy. Let's start in chapter 19, verse 22. This is where we ended Paul making preparations to leave Ephesus after nearly three years there. Look, verse 22, we read last week, but just to come back in, Luke writes, And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he stayed in Asia for a while. Now, I'm pausing there just for the moment because I want to put you in the right context here for the rest of the chapter. Paul is still in the city of Ephesus. That's what's meant there by Asia. And, of course, today the word Asia is applied to a much larger area of the world. But in this day, in the day that Luke wrote the book of Acts, Asia was what we today think of largely as Turkey. Paul isn't quite ready to leave the city. And before he does get out of town, there's an incident that breaks out. That's where we go next. Verse 23. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she, whom all of Asia and the whole world worship, will even be dethroned from from her magnificence. I love the way Luke writes this short passage because he uses his typical understatement to help set the scene. He says, for example, there is no small disturbance. Well, literally in Greek, that can be understood to mean there was a great riot, really big disturbance. The reason for the riot in Ephesus was, quote, the way. And here we have again that term that means the preaching of Jesus. More specifically, the riot was the product of a man, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith. Luke says the man was in the business of making shrines to Artemis. Now, these shrines were little amulets, things you could either hang on your wrist, maybe, or keep around your neck on a necklace, or maybe set up as a small object of worship in your home. They represented the massive temple that dominated the city of Ephesus, the temple to the goddess Artemis or Diana. Romans called her Diana, the Greeks called her Artemis. Remembering that the temple, we've already said, is the center of the city's commerce. It's a bank. It's a center of worship. Uh, It's also a refuge, by the way, for men who are running from the law. They had a kind of sanctuary in this place. Many historians 
argue that it's the most beautiful building ever built anywhere. And it would bring in massive numbers of visitors from all over to come and participate in Artemis or Diana worship. When Luke here says the silversmith, this man Demetrius, brought no little business, another one of his understatements, no little business to the craftsmen. What he means here is this man was likely the leader of a guild. You might remember from a couple weeks back I mentioned guilds. They're literally a trade association. They're not exactly like a union. They're a little broader than that. But they're in the same spirit of a union or a trades union in which those who are organized under this union must achieve certain levels of competence, be licensed or certified by this guild. They could only get their work through the guild. So if you were a silversmith working in Ephesus, the only way you ever got silversmithing work was if the guild of silversmiths assigned you the business. So if you were a silversmith and the leader of your guild says, I have something you need to hear, you definitely came and listened to the man because he controlled your income, your livelihood. Demetrius uses his authority to command an audience. And in this audience of silversmiths and related craftsmen, he probably assembled them at the guild itself. There's no statement in scripture about where they met, but that's a logical conclusion. They gathered in or around the guild's headquarter location. Now, notice as he speaks to these men, he says that their prosperity, their way of life, was at risk. Notice his first concern, in fact, his foremost concern, is their income. Later, he's going to appeal to their religious pride, both for the sake of the city and for the goddess herself. But don't be fooled. He betrays his true interest right from the beginning. It is a matter of commerce, of income. And he begins to describe the reason for his concern in verse 26. He says that they all know, they've all seen, they've all heard this man Paul preaching about the way in Ephesus. And he says this message has been so powerful that it hasn't just impacted the city, it's reached outward into nearly all of Asia. And that's confirming what we've already heard in the study of just the time he's been in Ephesus. Paul had a tremendous impact on not only the city, but in the surrounding region by virtue of his consistent preaching and the way it sent men out who carried the message further onward and reached most of Asia. And then he adds that the influence of all this preaching has been that a considerable number of people have come to believe that idols like Diana are no gods at all. Now, what a remarkable testimony for Paul's ministry when you think about it. Can there be a better testimony for a man's efforts to serve the gospel than the one that was given by an enemy of the gospel in the form of Demetrius? So many people, Demetrius says, were forsaking idols that the business of idol makers was at risk. I mean, that's a dramatic statement. You have to remember that the city of Ephesus was something near half a million people all by itself. Never mind the hundreds of thousands, maybe millions who came to the city over the course of a year to worship from out of town. And this man is so worried about the effect of the gospel in the area of Asia that it is, in his estimation, a risk to his livelihood. That, that is a dramatic statement about the impact of the gospel, that it could be not only that far-reaching, but have that much impact on people's daily lives. That might be the best measure we could ever hope to have of whether or not we're truly serving the, the needs of the gospel well. Not just that people hear, not just that we have converts, because after all, the role of the believer in, in reaching new believers is not one of conversion 
Ultimately, it's about discipleship. That's the call that Christ gives us in the Great Commission, to be disciplers. And therefore, what's the greatest measure of success in serving the Lord in ministry? The success measure is the degree of maturity in the disciples you're creating. And isn't this the best measure of that? That their maturity was such that it actually caused them to forsake these kinds of things in life, so much so that it threatened the business of those who produced them. It is, I think, the ultimate desire of our hearts to reach people in a meaningful way, not merely to reach them in a superficial way. I've heard people joke about uh, styles of evangelism that uh, catch and release. (laughs) That's a great way to put it. Catch and release. If that had been the style Paul followed, and we wouldn't have seen the silversmith complaining, would we? Now, he ends his short speech here by sanctimoniously appealing to a higher principle. He says, if something isn't done, the temple, the city and the temple of this beloved goddess will be regarded as worthless. After all, he says, Diana is the god, the goddess who's worshipped in all Asia and all the world. Well, that last statement is an exaggeration, clearly, and for effect. I mean, she was a popular idol, no doubt about it. There's, there's even evidence archaeologically that Diana was worshipped as far away from Ephesus as places like modern-day France and Spain. So it's not as though she didn't have a relatively wide appeal, but by that same token, she wasn't worshipped everywhere. She was not the main god of the world. Therefore, he's overstating it. But his tactic is obvious, right? In saying this at the end of his speech, he started with the pocketbook. That gets people listening. And then he has to move from the wallet to the heart. And so he ends with this intent to incite religious fervor and pride and civic pride and so on. But his true cause remains economic and self-serving. Losing business is his first concern. He says, not only is there danger that this trade, notice verse 27, that this trade of ours fall into disrepute. First concern, the trade falling into disrepute. In fact, that word is very interesting in the Greek, disrepute. It comes from actually two Greek words in the original text. They literally mean subjected to exposure or scrutiny. He's literally saying that their trade of making these false idols might be exposed for what it really is, that being merely silver trinkets, nothing of any real value. He's saying, you know, if this doesn't stop, we stand a good chance of people actually seeing what we do for what it really is. Making a bunch of hunks of silver and selling them as if they're spiritual objects. And we don't want that, do we? Now, it's also important here to understand that Ephesus was, in this period of history, experiencing a time of economic decline. In the latter half of the first century, Ephesus was in a period of downturn economically, in part because their port was silting up. And as it silted up, it made it harder for larger ships or barges to dock. And as that port lost traffic, the city lost commerce. It eventually put the city out of business. That's why it's now a ruin and located many miles inland. So when economic conditions deteriorate, everyone looks for a scapegoat. That happens even today. Hitler, for example, he successfully redirected German discontent following the economic depression they suffered after the First World War and redirected it against Jews and named them the culprits for the economic woes of Germany. And in doing so, of course, he rallied national pride and anti-Semitism to his side. Here you see, I think, a similar tactic on a small scale. From a Gentile pagan point of view, there was no distinction to be made between the Jew and this new form of Judaism called the way. It was all the same to him. And as a result, I think you see here a kind of similar tactic of anti-Semitism designed 
to rally people in the face of these troubles. The speech to the guild had the intended effect. So look at verse 28. When they heard this, they were filled with rage and they began crying out saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with, con- with the confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Aristarchus, sorry. Aristarchus. When Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Well, things get out of control pretty quickly here, obviously. In response to what they hear, you have all the guild members getting worked up and angry. They turn into this little mob. And their initial response is to chant this popular rally cry. They chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is actually a common phrase, the city's anthem. There have been archaeological discoveries in this region that bear inscriptions with exactly those words on the stones. So it was a popular phrase, popular enough to bear writing into stone like that. They chant it with a lot of zeal. And that excitement, we're told, spills out from wherever they are in the guild meeting place, moves rapidly through the city. Now, this is a big city, so this is getting big fast. Of course, when you have something this disorganized, built on emotion, moving this quickly in a large city, the sense of it is lost almost immediately. The purpose in it, the meaning of it, it's all thrust in no vector. You have this emerging powerful storm that sweeps new people into to get caught up in, hey, what's going on? Well, what's everybody excited about? But everyone tells a different story. So it just builds in a confusing mass of energy. But at the core of it are these guild members who are upset at Paul. Now, because the crowd grows quickly and because it appears to just spread throughout the city, they now need a place to meet. And so they move to the only venue in the city capable of holding the crowd. They go to the theater. The theater in ancient Ephesus, which has been excavated, in fact, if you go visit the city, this is the main feature of the ruins now, is known to be one of the more impressive theaters that was built in the ancient world. It could hold 25,000 people in 66 rows semicircular cut into the side of the hill. It's a large theater by any standards, 25,000 people in a place where you had no amplification for your voice. Think about it. That's not an easy crowd to work with. So you have now, and imagine this in your mind, somewhere upwards of 25,000 people, maybe even more, angry, bloodthirsty, on the verge of mob violence, perceived that they've been wronged, looking to right that wrong, yet no leader and no clear defined purpose. It's just energy and probably energy that the enemy is turning to his own purposes in all of this. So inside this den of iniquity, the crowd drags with them two men who are known to associate with Paul. Interestingly, here's another example in which Paul himself is not in the moment. He's managed to be away at the time, and so they can't find and grab him. They do the next best thing. They grab his friends. Now, these companions of Paul are mentioned at different places in Paul's letters. They're, they're, they're credited with being close companions of Paul. But now they're in mortal danger. There is literally a good chance they could be killed here. If this mob decided to act on their anger against these two guys... There'd be no way anybody really could stop them. There's no Roman soldiers standing by. There's no one to really get in their way. The thing would be done before anyone could have gotten in the middle of it to stop it. Eventually, this disturbance reaches Paul's ears, wherever he is in the city. And he runs, apparently, to the theater, gets there somehow, with the intent on going into the theater, standing on the stage, and addressing the crowd concerning what they're saying about him or about what he's doing. Knowing Paul, my assumption is he wanted to 
First, come to the rescue of his friends. But then secondly, what do you think Paul would have done if he had the chance to get on that stage? You can bet the opportunity to preach to 25,000 Gentiles who happen to be seated there looking at you would have been too much to pass up. Wouldn't it? But it's also likely he would have been killed if he had done that. In fact, some of his disciples were told in Ephesus restrain him from allowing him to even go into the theater. That should tell you something about the seriousness of this situation. That men who looked up to Paul, knowing he's an apostle with the power of an apostle, were yet willing to, to fight him. And the word in, in Greek there for restrain makes very clear that Paul was pushing to go and they were physically pushing him back. Not allowing him to go into that, into that theater. You get from all of this just an appreciation for how dangerous this situation is. Finally, then, we hear that there are some Asiarchs repeatedly urging Paul not to enter. Now, these Asiarchs are the elder statesmen of the province and of the religious life of the city. They were like the ambassadors of the city. They worked to protect the name of the city and the reputation of the city. Elder statesmen would be a term we would use today. Somewhere along the way, as Paul's in Ephesus, he's made friends with these guys, which is an interesting thing all of its own. And now they're acting to protect him. I think it's safe to assume that their motivation was not because they were believers. There's no indication here in the text that they were. More likely, they are trying to maintain the civic reputation. And the last thing they want Ephesus to be known for is mob violence against visitors. That hurts your tourism council a lot when you do that. So they're working hard to contain the situation and they know sending Paul into this moment doesn't make things better. What would happen, do you think, if we were to preach the gospel or serve in another capacity with consistency and passion and seriousness? What if that were our approach to ministry? In, in Paul's case, it meant he converted many in Asia Minor. He turned them away from idol worship and as a result, he threatened the livelihood of the entire industry when we work for the kingdom, we oppose the enemy. And when we oppose the enemy in his world, for this is his world for a time, then we must acknowledge his power and his determination to frustrate God's work and to oppose us. And to the degree we are successful in ministry, we will see increasing waves of persecution, testing, and trial. To the degree your ministry is consistent and passionate and based in the word and reaching people, you should expect, we can expect persecution, trial, and testing from the enemy. He's not going to leave us alone if we're threatening him. It goes without saying. I got some statistics from a, a man who's associated with the ministry who does full-time mission work. And based on his work in that field and some of the things mission organizations say about what they experience when they do work in other countries, particularly where the enemy seems to have a stronghold and Christianity is not welcome, they say that, 80% of believers globally who practice their faith live in an environment of persecutions. And when Christians are obedient to the calling to be bold and faithful witnesses, their experience, the, the missionary experience is they will face persecution. It's a given. And a good example you'll see today is in the, in the nation of China. If you watch the news just this last week during Easter, there were some interesting news stories about how the churches there, the underground home churches that dominate in that that are, that are spread throughout that country, the few that dared publicize a public Easter service in some public venue had their venue shut down before the service could start and police guarding the entrances so no one can get in and the leaders of those churches arrested before the Sunday came along. In fact, the current day litmus test for selecting leaders in the church in China is not so much spiritual gifting or talent or education, which are the kinds of things we turn to here. 
In China, what they care most about is whether the person has experienced persecution for their witness. And if you have yet to experience persecution for your witness, you're not deemed to be qualified as a leader in the church. In part because it's a sign of immaturity and in part because it suggests a lack of passion and commitment and effort in actually pursuing your faith. Because in that country, to do so would always bring some measure of persecution. What a, what a wonderful way to test somebody's readiness for ministry. If your local body of believers hasn't had anyone in the previous 12 months who has been refused for promotion, fired from their job, corrected by an authority, or harassed by a co-worker because of their faith in Jesus, then your church is serving the American dream rather than Jesus the Messiah. Uh, I've had moments in my time where because of my faith and the way I choose to, to outwardly show it, it's been a difficult or been an uncomfortable situation. So, uh, you know, I don't invite it, but I, I'm not surprised by it, and nor should any of us be. Paul here is serving the Lord, and it's brought him out of this point where his reach has been magnified by God's power. The effect of that reach has now hit to the culture and the heart of the culture, the pocketbook of the culture, and now he himself and his friends are on the verge of dying on this day for daring to preach the gospel. He must have been thrilled. He must have seen it as a great endorsement of what he had been doing. And then we have this theater filled with angry artisans, no clear leader, no clear target for their anger, and a possible target emerges here in verse 32. So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander since the Jews had put him forward, having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You know what? I think after about an hour, that would have been all I could have handled. I think I'd been out of there after an hour. It's a comical scene at this point. The whole purpose of the gathering has been lost now in the hubbub. Everybody's just there without clear direction. People are shouting at one another. They're saying different things. You can kind of imagine how the scene plays out and you can understand how it got to this point. And now as it deteriorates, the Jews were told, put forth Alexander. What that probably means is that they sensed that the anger of the crowd was in some loose way directed at Jews and they were concerned where that might go. So they said, hey, Alexander, why don't you get up there and defend us in some way? So Alexander stands up waving to the crowd, motioning to them, let me speak. I'm here to, to tell you something. And as he stands up, they recognize he is a Jew. There's no indication in the text that he is a believer. And he must have felt that he had a moment there in which he could be the hero. But as soon as they recognize that he's a Jew, they start this chanting again. Now, the reason they shout him down is because they saw Jews as part of a larger problem here, not just to the issue of the day. But remember, Jews themselves did not participate in idol worship. But they were the only exception to the general Roman prohibition against other gods beyond the ones that Rome approved. And so they had always been opposed, in, in a sense, to what the Gentiles did in idol worship. Now, that what was different between them and Paul is the Jews didn't go out evangelizing to stop other people from worshiping Diana. They just didn't do it themselves. Paul went that other step that caused all this concern. So now, as Alexander stands up, the men in the, in the assembly look at him and say, oh, you're the problem, we don't want to hear from you, and they shout him down. Had Alexander been given the chance to speak, we can imagine what he might have said. 
he would probably have tried to distinguish himself and the other Jews from Paul and the Christians. And in fact, I think he would have implicated Paul as the real villain. He would have tried to direct their anger at Paul. And here's why I think we can say that. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul mentions this man. And when he mentions him in 2 Timothy 4.14, here's what he says. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he has vigorously opposed our teaching. He's a coppersmith. Now, you remember that the guild didn't just bring in silversmiths. It brought in related tradesmen in this case. So he was probably brought into that group. And it is apparent he is no friend of the Christians. That chant, we're told, goes on for what must have seemed like forever. And then a city official arrives to take charge. Let's, uh, let's see how he handles the situation. Verse 35. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know the city of, Eph- of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the image which fell down from heaven? So, since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and the proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's events, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we will be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So you have a town clerk now, we're told, taking charge. Now, that name is a little confusing to us because we might think of that person as a low-level bureaucrat, but literally it means the mayor. He was the senior most executive officer of the city. And this term town clerk could be associated with mayor, the comptroller for finances. He was the librarian, city administrator. He could also be the leader of the city council or the sort of the city legislature. He was a very powerful man, by far the most powerful man in the city. He was an elected official, so he's a politician. He would have been the man who would have interfaced between the city and the Roman authorities, since this was a city-state. They were independent from Rome, uh, but they were under Roman authority as a whole uh, in that region. So when this important man shows up, you can bet they quieted down to listen to him. I love the way he talks to this group. He really shows his skill as a politician here as he takes charge. He starts by, number one, He soothes their religious concerns here. He argues, surely everyone knows and respects the city. Everyone will understand our role in guarding the temple and guarding the goddess and respecting her. What he's saying is, I don't care what this man, Paul, says or what he preaches. How is that going to change the reputation of this city as far and wide as it is known? And you can see a similar case being made today, right? If we were to see a revival break out in, let's say, Las Vegas... And suddenly the commerce in the city was being hurt. And there's an upheaval among the casino dealers. And they want to demand that we just get rid of these churches that are cutting into our business. You could see a similar speech, couldn't you? The mayor of Las Vegas saying, hey, hey, come on. How much damage can this guy really do? We're known the world over as the entertainment capital. This is Sin City. Who's going to change that in a day? He mentions the city Again, in connection with the temple, and I've mentioned the temple at several times. I'll, I'll conclude tonight with one more reference to it. It's the largest Greek temple ever built. Nothing ever equaled it. It could hold inside its walls 50,000 people. Imagine 50,000 people fitting inside an ancient Greek temple. 
the centerpiece of what was inside was this goddess Diana. She was portrayed as a woman with a lot of breasts on her. That's the picture. That image came from a meteorite. A meteorite fell and was found and thought to resemble a multi-breasted woman. This is sort of like the Virgin Mary showing up in your cheese sandwich on eBay. It, It had this instant cultural appeal in which somebody declared it to have spiritual significance because it appeared to them to be from the gods and the image of a god. So when it was found and they said, you know, this looks just like a multi-breasted goddess. I'm guessing it was found by a man. And let's make this the centerpiece of our worship in Ephesus. And so then they build the world's largest temple, Greek temple, around it. The meteorite itself was actually quite large from what I can read, and it was a prominent feature in the middle of the temple. That is why you hear the town clerk here saying, the world knows she came down from heaven to us. He's referring to the fact the world knows the story about this meteorite and how it descended. The temple in Paul's day was actually the second temple built in the same location to Diana. And this is a part of its lore. This was a part of its attraction. The first one had been built 600 years earlier, but it had been destroyed on exactly the same day that Alexander the Great was born, October 13th, 356 B.C. And that was a well-known fact that later carried into the folklore around it, and it was a sign of the gods affirming the end of something and the beginning of something else. When it was later rebuilt, that structure became one of the seven wonders of the world. The mayor, we're told, we move it on here, the mayor then advises the men that they don't do anything rash. Now, what he's talking about here is the obvious thing. Don't kill anybody. Don't go crazy here. Let's not have mob violence here. Let's not take our anger out on these two guys. And then he mentions, you know, they haven't robbed the temple and they haven't blasphemed the goddess. Now, that's interesting because he's really hitting on the two points the temple existed for. It was a bank. So you could rob it just like you could any other bank. And it was a place of worship. And, of course, just like in any style of, or, or tradition of worship, speaking ill against that tradition would inflame those who believed in it. So he's saying, you know, they haven't done either of these. That's an indication of how the gospel has been spread in terms of the manner in which it was spread. It was not spread as a direct offense against something. I find that to be a very interesting and helpful thing to remember in ministry. It's not to say that we can't oppose what is false. But I think it does reflect how Paul was careful to live within the culture. He didn't stay in Ephesus for three years and make friends among the Asiarchs and among the other city leaders without being politically astute. And we can certainly attest to the fact that his political astuteness didn't inhibit the spread of the gospel, didn't compromise the truth of what he said. They can live in harmony. But I think Paul becomes our model. And Paul's model was move there, work there, Eat there, live there, socialize there, and teach there. And over time, let God do what he will with that ministry. And in the process, it gained him the chance to escape this threat because it brought friends to his aid. So the man says, hey, they've done nothing here. They haven't robbed banks. They haven't spoken ill of us. What are we worried about? So he says, if there's a conflict, go to court, press charges, do it the right way. And then he adds a veiled threat. He says, disband or be at risk of charges of disorderly conduct. If you want to study political speech. This is a great example. Come at them in a soothing way, come at them with logic and argument, and end with a threat. It's powerful. It works. And with that, he successfully disbands the group. Now, what do we learn about this experience? Why is it here and what do we learn about it at the end of this story? Well, among other things, perhaps, you can see here the truth of Paul's teaching concerning how our actions in bringing the gospel into society matter for the sake of the gospel. And I'm thinking here particularly of Romans 13. Listen to a small passage, four verses out of Romans 13. Paul says in Romans 13, 1, 
Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Paul wrote those words during the years that he ministered in Ephesus. And I find that interesting because on his mind were these principles of how to live in a society in which perhaps the governing authorities don't know the Lord and are not friendly even to Christianity, and that would have been his situation more or less. But he is arguing here for, in the benefit of ministry, the necessity to be in accordance with government, to be in submission to government. Not merely because we want to do the right thing, but because it is helpful in the long run to ministry to be that kind of citizen. It's likely, I think, that he he would have thought back to this very moment, maybe, as he was contemplating some of these things. What Paul says about living in accordance with government would have had an immediate effect on what happened as that official walks into that theater. Because this official could have done many different things as he stepped into that moment. He could have asked for an accounting for what was the cause. He could have looked to blame somebody else in the moment and brought them up on charges for the reason that the assembly had to come about in this way. He had a lot of options in front of him. But what he did, he did so based on the good testimony of the men who were at the center of it. Paul's two friends and Paul himself. I think Paul must have recognized God's hand in this situation. If not immediately, certainly in his own writing. Persecution eventually broke out in the Roman Empire against Christians. And those things themselves are also under God's authority. But when government comes to our aid, it's a sign of God's protection. When government is the instrument of the enemy and persecutes us, that is also God testing the church. His willingness to put them in the fire, so to speak, for their own benefit. In other words, it's always from God. And therefore, it can never be an excuse to oppose government. I think again about the people in China this last weekend over Easter. They went about their normal business in trying to conduct church services because that was their calling in ministry. They knew that the government was opposed to it. When the government shut it down, they didn't riot. They didn't attack the police. In other words, they they understood the power of the government and they let it have its effect. But at the same time, they continued to work to extend the reach of the church and to meet. If you were in here during the Roman study, we talked about this this dilemma of how do you obey the government and obey God? And the way we reconcile that, if you remember, was that you obey God all the time and you obey government as much as you can until it disobeys God. And then the way you show respect to government in that situation is you take whatever punishment comes. So to the Christian who is disobeying government in order to be obedient to God, you go to jail willingly. You go to the cross willingly, as Peter did. That is the respect you have for government, that they have the right to take that action in the face of your disobedience of the law. The fact that they are acting against what you perceive to be something that is in God's best interest is folly because God's in control of that guy as much as he's in control of you. And if it was not in God's best interest to let you be arrested, you wouldn't have been arrested. So you allow it to happen because you you understand all of this is happening under God's sovereignty. You're not being judged for the outcome of your ministry. You're being judged for your obedience to the command of God's word. So we just do what God calls us to do. We take whatever comes our way. 
without an attempt to force our hand against government any more than necessary. That, that to me, is a, is a principle that Christians forget, I think, quite often in the West because we have a very libertarian viewpoint. And that causes us to be more interested in our liberty than in our obedient witness. When the force of government, in opposition to the gospel, expresses itself into your life and you are caught by it, you accept that as God's providence and you work within the constraints that it brings. And as Paul did, you go into jail and you sing praises all night until the earthquake opens the doors, right? You, you accept what happens from there forward. This ends, for the most part, the story of Ephesus and Acts. Remember how the fate of Ephesus turns out? Jesus said this in Revelation 2, writing a letter to the church. He said, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love and therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The church in the city, the one Paul founded, the one that got so big and changed all of Asia, that church was known for resisting false teachers, for being scrupulous about good teaching and being defenders of the faith. And that's probably in part because Paul spent so much time there. They had this foundation of great teaching and and the need to be taught. But then they lose their first love. And in that kind of a setting, in that kind of a city, that can only mean they lost a focus on the, on the gospel itself, on Christ at the center of it, of the message of salvation at, as, at its core, and they became focused on something else. And probably in that city it was to, to exist as an organization for its own sake, to, to have prominence in a city in which prominence mattered, maybe for a pursuit of wealth in a city that valued wealth and, and power. Given how much the city prided itself on structure and commerce and all that goes with it, they might have been tempted to try to see the church as an entity that competed at the same level. And I find that interesting because I think today that is maybe the biggest problem in the church today. Rather than seen as a movement from home to home and person to person, the church today is a church focused on structure and presence and notoriety and power and organization so that it can compete in a world that values those things. And it ceased to exist, this church and later the city itself ceased to exist as Christ promised, because they never returned to their first love. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the time we've been able to spend learning about Paul's work in Ephesus, three years there, Father, that changed the world. And yet, Father, he did it in the old-fashioned way that you've taught us out of Scripture. He was consistent, true to your word, dedicated to the ministry, and forever preaching, Father. We praise you and thank you that you gave us that witness and that example. May we be counted worthy to repeat it. And Father, I pray you bring us back here in the next couple of weeks so we can continue this study. In Jesus' name, amen.